But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepting uh, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, God, we praise you that you have given us your word. You've revealed to us who you are and what your purposes are in this world through your word. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to instruct us to understand your word, to apply your word to our lives. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We ask that you would give us, indeed, ears to hear, that you would change us by the words you speak to us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our uh, third week uh, studying the brilliant chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the Bible's kind of most extensive treatment of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. What did it mean when Jesus was, was raised from the dead? And the passage we're looking at this morning is one of the most important in the whole Bible in connecting Jesus' resurrection to the last things. You know, we're all living in a story in this world. How does the story that we're all living in the history of the world end? How does the story end? That's the study of the last things, or the, the uh, theological word for it is eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last thing. And uh, eschatology is the study of last things. And if you've grown up in the church, you maybe have heard versions of how the story we're living in ends that are pretty different from what you read about in this passage. So for example, there was a, a great evangelist named D.L. Moody in the, in the 19th century who's famous for saying, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all you can. So D.L. Moody 
viewed the story we're living in is like the world is a Titanic. The Titanic is sinking and a few people are going to get on a lifeboat and get saved. Jesus is the lifeboat. Get on the lifeboat. He's trying to get people on the lifeboat. And, you know, often that kind of story that we're living in, the Titanic sinking, is uh, usually paired with an insistence that Jesus is coming back very soon. And I'll tell you, you know, if you view history that way, it will have a huge impact on how you live your life, how the church interacts with culture, uh, how we, we interact with the world around us. I'll, you know, I'll give you an example of this. The, uh, just this last fall, Pastor Craig and I were in Chicago. We were at a, uh, visiting a seminary, recruiting uh, interns and church planners. And we knew a guy who was going to the seminary, and we were walking by one of the buildings. There's a bunch of the dorms. He's like, yeah, I guess the seminary is going to have to rebuild all of these dorms. They were made in the 60s, and they were made really poorly. And why do you think they made them really poorly? Well, Jesus is coming back soon. Why would we make, you know, dorms that are going to last, and this world's a sinking ship? And so now, you know, he didn't come back, and now they got to rebuild the dorms. So how, that's eschatology plays into how you, the kind of wood you use to build the dormitories. Eschatology matters profoundly for how Christians live and how they think about their work and culture and their churches, about how they think about everything. And fortunately, the sinking ship story is not what we find in 1 Corinthians 15. Instead, we find an amazingly hopeful and beautiful picture of Christ not destroying the world, but transforming and renewing the world. And my hope is the picture that we see in 1 Corinthians 15 would deeply inspire our mission as a church. Like, what are we doing? What is the mission that God has for us? What is our, in your work, in the mission of Christ Church Bellingham and Birchwood neighborhood, our, our missions of supporting missionaries in the world, all of that is motivated about where is this story going. And so today, we're gonna do a, introduction to eschatology. What does the Bible say about the last things? And there are three things that I want to point out from this passage. This is what they are, is that Jesus is beginning a new humanity. Jesus is beginning a new kingdom. And Jesus is beginning a new creation. Three crucial things that are at the center of the hope of the gospel, the hope of what it means to be a Christian, and I think each of them is so important. That Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity, Jesus is the beginning of a new kingdom, and Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. Now, I have to make one aside before we jump into those three points, because I know some of you will have a question about verse 29, which says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And some of you say, what's baptized on behalf of the dead? I, what does that even mean? And probably what it means is that there were Christians in Corinth, people who became Christians, and then they died before they had a chance to get baptized. So certain people in the congregation would kind of stand in their place and be like, hey, they didn't get a chance, I'll, ba I'll get baptized for them to show us like they have this hope, they are in Christ, God's promises are true to them because they were Christians. Now, some of you will, might know that this verse is an important verse in the Mormon church. The Mormon church, if you know they do all the genealogies where they try to trace back all the people who've died on earth, it's because of this verse, because they want to have people baptized for all the people who have died. And um, not only is that not what's happening in Corinth, 
I think it's a good moment to realize that, you know, when the Bible has one obscure verse that's kind of hard to understand, you shouldn't build like a whole doctrine or a whole practice on this one verse that's kind of strange. It's not, you know, everything that's important in the Bible is repeated. And God talks about in multiple places. Actually, you could probably take any book of the Bible and throw it out and Christianity would not change. Because if something is important to God, he says it over and over again. So it's a good practice that if you're going to make something important, make sure the scriptures explain it in other places and we don't look at an obscure verse like this. So that's all I'm going to spend on verse 29 because it's not the most interesting verse in this passage. And so we're going to put our focus elsewhere on these three important truths about eschatology. The first is this. Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. And you can see that in the first verses there. It says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, you notice what's happening is the Apostle Paul is making a comparison between Adam. You know, the first humanity came from Adam as the first human. He's saying, oh, Jesus is kind of parallel. In the same way that Adam, through his sin, kind of ruined everything, Jesus is now starting a new humanity. He's the second Adam who's going to heal all that's wrong with humanity. And so that's why we say Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. Adam was the beginning of a humanity. Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. And that's actually a really important concept for understanding the storyline of the Bible. And you notice the language there, how it talks about being in Adam or in Christ. What does that mean to be in a person? What does it mean to be in Adam or in Christ? Well, I, th- I think the, another theological word that's used to describe that is the word covenant representation or covenant headship. And one of the things that you see throughout the Bible is that God relates to his people through a representative, through a head. And uh, it's one of the things that you see over and over throughout the Old Testament. So it's not just true with Adam. Like, you know, Adam was kind of the covenant head or representative of humanity. But you see that with Abraham. You know, when Abraham is chosen by God, God says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. So it's through Abraham that the families of the earth will find blessing. Or, uh, or, you know, if you're an Israelite, it says that you are in Israel. Israel was the name of Jacob. You're in a guy. What does that mean, to be in Jacob? Well, it means you are one of the people that Jacob is the head of. He's the representative of. Or one more example, it says in 1 Corinthians earlier that all the Israelites, when they went through the Red Sea during the Exodus, they passed through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. They went into Moses. What does that mean? You're one of the people that Moses is the covenant representative. He's the leader of. And, uh, and what Paul is saying in these verses is that all of us are born into Adam. And when we are in Adam, Adam shares with us everything that's his. So what's true about Adam? What do we know about Adam? Well, Adam sins against God. So what do we all do? We sin against God. He disobeys God. We disobey God. Adam was thrown out of the garden. He's been alienated from God. How are we? We all have been far off from God. We were distant from God. Adam got sick and died. What happens to all of us? We get sick and die. So that's, Adam has shared with us, that's what it means to be an Adam. Likewise, when we are in Christ, Christ shares with us everything that's his. And what's Jesus? Well, Jesus is God's beloved son. So what do we become? 
his beloved children. And uh, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens to us? We, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And uh, Jesus has eternal life. And his body was resurrected from the dead. What's going to happen to us? We have eternal life. And our bodies in the, in, uh, in the age to come will be resurrected just as Jesus was. And, um, you know, you weren't here in the first service. We had a, a family and, a, and another man that were baptized in the, in the first service. And, and what baptism is, it's, it's, it's through faith in baptism that someone is transferred from the old humanity in Adam, and then they're brought into Christ, and they are joining, they're being welcomed in to the people that Jesus is the head of, and that happened, that happened today. And so Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. By faith and baptism, we become a part of that new humanity. Now you might say, well, what does this have to do with the last things with eschatology? Well, you know, one uh, I think is important because, you know, many of you say, you know, I was baptized. I put my faith in Jesus, but I'm still feeling a lot of the Adam kind of going on in me. You know, I still am sinning every day. It seems like God often feels distant to me. I'm gonna, I'm getting sick. I got family that's getting sick and who are dying. And, uh, and what that means is that all of us are living in this kind of in-between place. That the new humanity has begun, it's already, but in some ways we're still living in the old humanity. It's like we're the new humanity, was stuck back in the middle of the old humanity, and there's this transfer that is happening, this process is happening. It's the, the old world and the new world are overlapping, and they're overlapping in us. And so I think that, that that transition from the old to the new is really the topic of our second point. It's not only that first, Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. That's what Jesus was doing. He's coming as a second Adam. He's inviting people into a, into a new humanity. The second thing is that Jesus is the beginning of a new kingdom as well. And you see the language of the kingdom in verse 24 there. It says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. And I, I know when I first heard the language of a kingdom, like for me, kingdoms made me think of like fairy tales and stuff like that. And so I think sometimes when people think of the Bible, the Bible's talking about a kingdom. It's kind of like a fairy tale. And so it's hard for us to relate to that. And also part of the reason for that is because we don't live in a kingdom, right? We live in a democracy. And what, you know, what is one of the main ways that we criticize a president? He's acting like a king, and he's using his executive power too much. And we don't like kings, so we're suspicious of kings. And, um, and we know that so much of what affects how we live in this world is those who are in power. And that's why we're so emotional about who gets elected. And that's why we're so critical of people who are in power. But what this text says is that, you know, whether you're a person who thinks, you know, Barack Obama was the worst thing that happened to our country, or you think Donald Trump was the, is the worst thing that happened to our country, 1 Corinthians says that the real hope of the Christian is that Jesus is, listen to these words, destroying every rule and every authority and power. Jesus is the true king of all kings. He's the ruler of all rulers. And some of you would be like, what is that talking about? Destroying every rule and authority and power. What could that be talking about? Well, you know, I read an interesting example of this uh, recently. Um, 
in a biography about Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great was a, uh, a, the king of Wessex in the, in the ninth century. And in ninth century England, England was made up of all this collection of smaller kingdoms. And, they had all, and there was a massive invasion from the Vikings. The Vikings were just taking over like kingdom after kingdom until Wessex, Alfred's kingdom, was the last kingdom standing against all of the, uh, the Viking invaders. And the Vikings were pressing in on Wessex and had defeated Alfred multiple times in battle, and Alfred had to go into exile. He had just had this small group of, of uh, his loyal, loyal followers that went to a place called Athene in the country. And in exile, you know, he started spying out the Vikings and, you know, learn about their movements and their tactics and stuff like that. And he slowly started gathering an army to take on Guthrum. Guthrum was the Viking king he was going to take on. And uh, they finally meet in the great battle of Eddington where the Saxons, that's Alfred's, the, the English, the Saxons have this all-day battle with the Vikings. And they are thinking like, this is our land. These are our wives. These are our children. And they finally overcome the Vikings amazingly. And the Vikings start scattering and they're retreating. And they retreat to a city called Chippenham uh, that they had taken over earlier. But Chippenham had not been reinforced with walls and it had very little resources in Chippenham, you know, for them to, to provide for the army. And so the Saxons come and they surround Chippenham. And it's now time for Alfred to just pounce on his enemies and bring out Guthrum and to kill them and to kill all these invaders. And so Guthrum, the Viking king, sends a letter to, to Alfred and says, okay, you won. We're asking you to show us mercy. And I'll tell you, the Vikings showed no mercy to the Saxons when they were invading all those kingdoms. And they killed many people and they raped and they pillaged and it was just absolutely terrible. And he says, we'll give you what, and Guthrum says, we'll give you whatever hostages you want. We just let us leave Wessex with our lives. We want, we'll never come back. And so Alfred, you know, he's been, he's ready to defeat his enemies. He says, okay, I'll show you mercy under one condition. He said that when the Vikings came into all these kingdoms, when they defeated a kingdom, they would always take the Saxon king and they would offer the king to their god, Odin, as a sacrifice. And so there was one uh, king that they just filled with arrows. They looked like a porcupine and they cut his head off and they offered his blood to Odin. And so Alfred said, uh, okay, Guthrum, you had all of our kings offered to your God. Now you need to be offered to our God. But this is the difference, is that the blood for your sins has already been shed by Jesus. And the way that you will offer yourself to our God is you're going to give up all your violent ways. And you're going to come to God in baptism. And so Guthrum immediately says, I'll, I'll do it. And all my leading officers will come and will be baptized. And amazingly, Alfred, Alfred's army, you know, this is the biggest military victory they've ever had. No celebration, no feasting. They wait for weeks as Guthrum and his men prepare for baptism. And they get all dressed in white. And they go to the little church. They don't go to the big fancy church in the city. They go to the little church in Athene when, where Alfred was in exile. This small little church. And they're all baptized there. And, you know, Alfred was thinking what you're thinking. You know, Guthrum's just doing this to save his skin. And so Alfred also told Guthrum, listen, it's not just that you're going to get baptized, but you're going to accept me as your godfather. And I'm going to mentor you. And I'm going to teach you about the Christian life. And I'm going to adopt you as my spiritual son. And all his men, they were baptized. And then the party began. And together, the Saxon soldiers and the, the Viking soldiers 
feasted together, drinking mead, singing songs of praise to God as newly baptized brothers. Now, you might wonder, what happened? Well, Guthrum, he took on a Christian name, Ethelstan, and he ruled another kingdom, and for the rest of his life, he lived by his Christian name, and he ruled as a Christian king. He was transformed by the mercy of Jesus and by the waters of baptism. Now, that's an incredible story. And you might wonder, man, that'd be cool if that happened more often. How many kings is Jesus planning to do that with? How many kingdoms is Jesus planning to transform? Verse 25 tells us. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He will subdue every king and every kingdom. And Jesus has told us, you know, when is Jesus reigning? He told us after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him now. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is reigning now. And 1 Corinthians is clear that the end of this age will not come until Jesus has brought his reign of peace to every nation on earth. That is an incredibly beautiful, optimistic uh, picture. That is not a sinking Titanic. The picture, the story that this is telling us is that the Titanic has been taken over by pirates and Jesus is going to reclaim control of the ship so that the party can start again. That is the story that we are all a part of and Jesus is the beginning of a new kingdom. Now, uh, let me answer one objection. There are probably several objections you have. I'm going to answer one of them. Some of you might think, that sounds mighty triumphalistic. Oh, the church is, you know, Jesus is going to subdue every king and kingdom in the world, and we're going to be the winners. You know, our religion's going to win, and doesn't that feel good? It feels powerful. We're going to be vindicated. And isn't this just going to kind of feed our egos and our self-righteousness that we're the winners of, of everyone in the world? And by the way, it doesn't seem like Jesus is winning. Like, aren't less people going to church now in our country? Isn't it going the opposite direction? You know, how does that fit in with your optimistic eschatology? Well, I, I think that's such an important question. And the answer is um, you have to look at the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Because does Jesus look triumphalistic when he's defeating his enemies? When did Jesus defeat Satan in the Roman Empire and all the religious Pharisees? when he was hanging on the cross. It wasn't power, it was weakness. And we see in the cross that the weakness of God is stronger than the kingdoms of man. And so, Jesus' kingdom will overcome all other kingdoms, but, it will, but he will always do it by way of the cross. And that's why, actually, G.K. Chesterton has a great book, The Everlasting Man, where he talks about the history of Christianity. He says, the path of Christianity has always been death and resurrection. This is what he says. Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again. For it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. But the first extraordinary fact which marks this history is this, that Europe has been turned upside down over and over again, and that at the end of each of these re revolutions, the same religion has again been found on top. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. 
What Chesterton says that Christianity's story throughout history is the, uh, that the path to the kingdom is always through the cross. It's not about power, it's about weakness. And what that means is the way that Jesus is building his kingdom is through little marginal groups like us. You know, you know people drive by this church and they're just like, what's going on in there? That's, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up going to church. I'd always drive by churches and they're like, who goes to all these buildings? And it's no one, no one in the world cares. And it's in this marginal place of weakness that Jesus in every nation is drawing disciples to himself. He's adopting spiritual children into his family and transforming them by his grace and by his mercy. There's no kingdom like it. And so Christianity has to stay humble. We stay humble because the path is always we're dying with Christ. But we're always hopeful and optimistic about the future because Jesus is risen. And I would say, you know, American Christianity right now, is it dying or rising? I think there's both happening. There's both death and resurrection happening in the American church right now. So up to this point, we've learned two things about eschatology. First, that Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. Okay, we are all both in Adam and in, in Christ. And second, that Jesus is the beginning of a new kingdom. And the way that Revelation puts it is, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, one last point. Stay with me. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation also. And in order to understand that, I want to explain a couple more things about this passage. Excuse me. So the first thing is, some of you will notice the word first fruits in this passage. And I want to answer, well, you know, what are the first fruits? You see it there in verse 20, where it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then again in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, the firstfruits were the, were the first crop that would become ripe before the harvest. And the, these, the firstfruits would be a foretaste for the farmer of how good the, the harvest was going to be. And uh, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection in the past was a foretaste. It was a preview of what God intends to do for all of Jesus' people at the end of the age. What happened to Jesus when his body was raised from the dead is what will happen to God's people when their bodies are raised from the dead. Now that would have been surprising to a Jew living in the first century because, you know, in the Old Testament, it gave promises that the Messiah and his people would be raised from the dead. But if you read the Old Testament, you would have thought, oh, that's going to all happen at once. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes and that one event is split into two. The resurrection of the Messiah and then the resurrection of his people later. And we're living in the time in between the resurrection. So the resurrection has only partially happened now. And it's at the end of the age that the Messiah's people would be raised. And that's why it says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So first, the first fruits are a foretaste and a guarantee of what will happen in the future. Second question, what is the language of under his feet mean? You know, some of you have seen that, verse 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And that under his feet, it comes from three really important passages in the Old Testament. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story about the serpent. The serpent deceives the man and the woman, and they fall. And God says to the serpent, there is going to come a man, a seed of the woman, who's going to what? Crush the serpent's head. 
He's going to put the serpent under his feet. <laughs> so first, like Genesis 3, oh, so putting under feet means undoing what happened in Genesis. And then in Psalm 8, Psalm 8 uh, is a picture of what humanity was always meant to be. The humanity was supposed to rule over nature and over the animals. And it's this beautiful picture of like human life, how it was meant to be. And hum humans were supposed to have all things in subjection under their feet. So it's about what it means to be human. Last one is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 gives a promise of a priest king who would come and like set all things right in the world. And what Paul is saying is that all three of these verses are being tied together in Jesus. He's the one who's going to set things right in the creation. He's the priest king who's the promised one to come and who will introduce us all to what it finally means to really be human. And... Um, and that's why we say that Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. He is undoing what was wrong in the old creation. And so Christianity is not about God's good green earth being a Titanic that is sinking into the ocean or God's creation being trash that he's just going to uh, scrap. You know, that's a question. Like, God makes this beautiful world. Is he going to just scrap this all? Is he going to get rid of it? No, Christianity is about resurrection. It's about restoration. It's about healing and renewal. Now, I think that all of us, you know, we have kind of a double feeling about living in this world. You know, all of us on the one hand feel like this is such a privilege to, like, be alive. You know, like, I have these eyeballs that I can see the moon, and I have skin where I can feel the sun and what it's like. And like just like having a beating heart and breathing and thinking is such an amazing thing that if I could just do those things, it's worth being alive. And yet, some of you would say, you know, living in this world is so immensely hard. I'm not even sure. I, I just would prefer if it was over sooner rather than later. I mean, it's so immensely difficult and harsh. And it's crazy that all of us can have both those feelings at the same time. How can we feel such ambivalence about living in this world and the answer is that this creation is good when it is subjected to God as her king. When the, when the creation is living in subjection to God, then it's beautiful. And that's why Paul describes the renewed and redeemed creation this way. In verse 28, he says, when all things, that's all things created in the universe, all things unseen and spiritual are subjected to him then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And the reason we aren't able to enjoy God's creation is because humanity is in rebellion against God. And when all things are put in subjection to him, God will be all in all. Now, I know that I'm not doing justice to this passage, but I guarantee you, you read every book in this world, you go to any religion, you go to any counselor, you go to any therapist, you go to any doctor, none of them will give you a hope anywhere remotely close to what is being promised in 1 Corinthians 15. A share in a new creation. Finally being a human freed from death and sin and evil and suffering. There is nothing, no one is even pretending to offer something like that. Only Jesus Christ, the one who has already been raised from the dead, would pretend to offer such a thing. And um, the promise is not just that we will go to heaven when we die, but we will finally become who God made us to be and that that is the end of the story we are living in. And so this leaves us with this question. 
How do you respond to such an amazing hope? And Paul tells us in verse 34, this is what he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor. I probably wouldn't have put it that way. But he says, wake up. And some of us, you know, we might complain that our life is hard, that our life is disappointing. It hasn't gone how we wanted. And Paul says, wake up. What did you expect? You are both in Adam and in Jesus. You are part of the kingdom of the cross. That means that death and resurrection are at work in you until he comes to make all things right. And verse 32 says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if the dead are raised, you have a share in a new creation. Then friends, I tell you, stand fast. Do not waver from the hope that is yours. Learn to say to yourself, whatever may come, Whatever misery of this broken world, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for this hope. And I believe that at the last day, my flesh will stand upon the earth and I will see my God with my very own eyes. And so whatever may come in this life, I will wait for the Lord. Praise be to Jesus. Let's pray. Mighty Father in heaven, we praise you for a hope, a new humanity, a new kingdom, a new creation. Lord, you know that these are the deepest desires and longings of our hearts. And above all, that we would be in a place where you are all in all. Lord, would this hope live deeply in each one of us? And we pray that this hope would also be the engine that motivates our mission as a church, that we long for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, uh, we long for the day when Jesus comes to make all things right and you do for us what you did for him in resurrection. And until that day, we pray that you would guard us and keep us from the evil one that we would remain faithful and hold fast to Christ who is the head. It's in his name we pray. Amen.